Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So it was the fall of 2002. It was after a Friday night football game when I was in high school. A few of my friends and I, now this is not a lesson to take home with you young people, but a few of my friends, and this is a disclaimer, right? A few of my friends and I decided that after the game, it would be a really good idea to go and hang out in this really nice open field that sat behind St. Paul's Reformed Episcopal Church. So if you were here last week, you're starting to figure out that there's a trend in my life that began with my grandmother of trespassing, right? (laughs) But it seemed like a a nice place to just sit, chill, have a good time, be high schoolers, and, you know, drink a few of those illegal beers that we had acquired. And all things were going well and good until the pastor showed up with the local police department. We were busted pretty quickly, and part of our restorative penance to the Episcopal Church and the judicial circuit, whatever, whatever, of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, was that we would all attend uh, educational group classes at this social service and counseling center down the road called Aldersgate. And the point of the experience was to hopefully illuminate us to the dangers of our reckless behavior and to help us make different, better, more meaningful choices in the future. Of course, I was a senior in high school, so I had no idea that uh, I was going to even need to make better choices, let alone actually willing to do so. But I was willing to get out of trouble, and so I went to the place and I did the thing that they asked me to do. But what I had no idea of was that someday, many years later, I was going to look back and laugh at what God had been up to in my life even back then. Because it wasn't until much later in my life that I learned the story of what that place named Aldersgate was actually named after. See, on September 22nd of 1728, a brilliant and determined young man named John Wesley was ordained as a priest in the Church of England, which is the mother church of both the Episcopal Church in America and the United Methodist Church. And so for years, John Wesley faithfully preached from the pulpit in his local congregation, And then when he felt that there might be opportunity elsewhere for the gospel and felt as though he was being called to do something new, he made trips across the Atlantic Ocean to the English colonies here in the New World, specifically to the colony of Georgia, which if you know anything about the history of Georgia, it was an English penal colony. It was a prison colony. 
And so in the midst of all of this meaningful work for God that John was doing, he found himself becoming more and more aware of the fact that something might be missing from his personal spiritual life. And this really became apparent to him after a particularly painful experience that most of the known world can share with him in. Heartbreak. A young lady in the colony of Georgia broke his heart. So he got on a boat to return to England with a growing emptiness inside of him. But in an act of grace, upon returning to England, John met with a Moravian man, just another denomination of Christianity, a Moravian man named Peter Bowler, who was preparing himself to set sail for missionary work in Georgia. And so John and he sat down and talked about ministry, about life, about the place that Peter was going to minister to, what he might encounter, and, and how John had found effective ways to minister in Georgia. But they also talked about life, about things of God. And what John began to realize was that he wasn't just struggling with a broken heart. John was actually missing something much more important in his life. What came out of these conversations was that John admitted that he lacked the assurance of his own salvation in Christ. This is a pastor, y'all. People too, right? You see, until this point, John's entire personal faith had been based around the pursuit of personal piety. It was around the personal pursuit of knowledge while he spent time in Oxford studying, and then afterwards based on strict adherence to personal righteousness. And so what he learned when he spoke to Peter Bowler was that his spiritual state had degraded to the point that he believed himself to be, and these are his own words, a child of wrath, entirely unable to be saved by God's grace. But Peter, Peter opened his mind to the idea that perhaps he was being a bit hard on himself. Perhaps he was being a bit overdramatic. And perhaps, just maybe, God was bigger than what was going on between John's ears. So Peter opened his mind to the idea that perhaps he should stop trying to think his own way out of his problem on his own and get involved in the thing called Christian community. Because perhaps what he was missing from his life and from his spirit could be found in the power of a community. And so John took Peter's advice, and he began to form small groups of people who would meet to confess their sins each week, to repent, and then encourage one another in Christ. And this was going really well for others in the group, but John still found that something was missing for himself. He was moving closer. He, he had a working knowledge of that which he needed, but he just didn't quite have the one thing required to pull out of this spiritual pit that he found himself in. 
John was like a nicely built fire. The logs properly split, the kindling sitting in just the right space with the crumpled up newspaper stuffed underneath. You know, you've made these things before, right? But there was one thing that was missing. One thing that without it, no fire would ever come. There was no spark to set this thing that he had been doing ablaze. John was just a neatly crafted but useless relic. But then, after a three-day despondent and depressive episode, on Wednesday, May 24, 1738, John reluctantly wandered into a Moravian meeting place called the Fetter Lane Society on Aldersgate Street in London. And when he walked in, they were reading from Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, and what happened was something miraculous. Something changed inside of John Wesley that night, and he wrote this about it in his journal. He said, about a quarter before nine, while he, Martin Luther, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And this moment has been celebrated as Wesley's Aldersgate experience, which lit the fire that fueled Wesley's development of the Methodist movement that has now swept the entire world. I wish I could say the same thing happened at my literal Aldersgate experience, but that's just not the way that things went. But I can tell you that, that it was still a drop in the bucket of grace that God used to eventually change my own heart and life. But think about that time gap, 19, or 1728 to 1738. Ten years, John Wesley waited for the spark of the Holy Spirit to come and light his heart and his ministry on fire. For ten long years, John searched for some kind of direction, some kind of assurance that his personal faith and his ministry weren't all for naught, that they weren't all a waste of time. And in the most unexpected way, and at the most unexpected time, the fire was lit and the world began to change. And so we're traveling together through the book of Acts in a sermon series called How to Start a Fire. And what we're looking at is different elements that were required for the early church to spread like a wildfire across the known world. And so just leading up to today, we've learned that before you even start a fire, you have to, one, know that it's possible. And then two, wait and leave space for the fire to breathe. But even with all of the preparation, what we have to come to the point of realizing today 
is that we've only created the environment for a fire to start. See, there's one pivotal, pivotal and deeply important thing that we need if our fire, like John Wesley's heart, is ever going to go from a nicely erected teepee of wooden materials to a useful and purpose-fulfilling fire. See, what we need, we need a spark. We need a catalyst, something to come in and change our state of being, to move us from nothingness into a full-fledged fire. So you might recall that Jesus had promised the disciples that something was coming, that the, the Holy Spirit would come to them soon. And so Jesus told them, go on and just go to Jerusalem and wait there for it. And for 10 days after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the disciples did just that. They went to Jerusalem and they waited. And they prayed and they, they experienced the gift of community as they prepared themselves for that which was promised to come. And then it came to them in the most unexpected way, at the most unexpected time. And this story comes to us in the book of Acts chapter 2. It tells us the story of the spark that lit the fire that became the church of Jesus Christ. So this is Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in a native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And so let's just take a step back here. The disciples are all in Jerusalem. They're at the place where Jesus had told them, go and wait. And this strategic timing is incredible. It's, it, it never ceases to blow my mind how God does just absolutely impeccable work. Because here they are in Jerusalem waiting as they were told. Because Jesus knew 
that soon would be the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish festival that takes place 50 days after the Passover feast. And Passover, as you might recall, is the feast that was going on at the time when Jesus was arrested and crucified. And what Passover and Pentecost share in common is that they're both considered pilgrimage festivals, which means that people from all over the world would drop what they were doing and travel to Jerusalem to celebrate both of them. And so very likely, many of the people present at this Pentecost festival were also present during Passover at Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And so all of these Jewish people are flooding into Jerusalem, people who live all over the world because of the fact that they've been displaced by generations of conquest, of exile, and of just the political turmoil and upheaval within both the Greek and the Roman empires. And these people, for hundreds of years, have been living in foreign lands, learning new languages, and having a different language of their own heart than Greek or Hebrew. And what God knows is that the best way to communicate with people is to speak to them in their own language, the language that they hear in their heart and the language that they speak with their tongue. And so it's in this moment when Jerusalem is a massive mixing bowl of people from around the known world people who will soon return to their homes carrying a new gift, that the spark arrives. The Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples, giving them the power to leave that room in Jerusalem and preach the gospel of a king named Jesus to the world that was literally just waiting outside to hear it. And all the people are amazed What does this mean? These men are speaking to us in our own language all at the same time. What could possibly be going on here? This must be an act of God. This must be a miracle. But you know who's always there when something incredible happens? When God moves, when when a miracle occurs? Who's always there? The people that say, I don't believe it. There must be something else going on. And and Luke knows that too. And Luke wants to make sure that we're aware that this isn't just a phenomena that is isolated to our modern times. And so the very next verse, after after it says all these people were, were just saying, like, what could possibly be going on here? What does this mean? Luke says... And these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. But others sneered and said, they're filled with new wine. Essentially, you know, these guys are drunk. (laughs) But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them and said, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. 
Peter and the disciples hadn't been to a college tailgate yet. <laughs> but there's always the naysayers, right? Something amazing is going on. They're like, mm, no, I don't believe it. That's not possible. These people are drunk. These people are mentally ill, right? What could you, be, what could you possibly be thinking listening to all of this and believing it? But Peter's like, listen, this is the real deal. This is an act of God. And what he does is he goes on to preach the very first Christian sermon. He quotes the prophet Joel and proclaims the resurrection of Jesus from the grave to the masses. He says, listen, y'all went away. We were here, and we saw him resurrected. We walked around with him, and then we saw him ascend into heaven to be exalted at the right hand of God. And so go and let all of Israel know that this Jesus, the guy whom you crucified, is both Lord and Messiah. And the message is powerful. It, it strikes at the heart of the people like a steel blade hitting a piece of flint to create a spark. And what happens is this. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, well, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, it's easy. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. This small yet still contained group of people became the beginning of a wildfire. They believed they repented, they were baptized, and they began to prepare for the work ahead by devoting themselves to two things. The teaching of the apostles and the fellowship of believers through breaking of bread and prayer. And often, I, I don't know about everybody, but often as Christians, we're really, really good at like one of these two things. See, often, I'll admit it, people like John Wesley, people like myself are, are really good at being devoted to the teachings of the apostles, really good at reading books and thinking theologically and even talking theologically. But often forget that it's more about quite a bit more than thinking about and talking about God. It's about being about God, right? But then there's those of us who are the opposite. Books? No. I'm not reading a book. But I'll go to the potluck for sure. I'll be there. I'll even pray at it. 
I'll go to the, the, the events, and I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll, I'm about the community, but the teachings of the apostles part is, is hard for me because they talk funny, right? If they could just write normal, it'd be a lot easier for me. But what we're going to find is that the early church required both of these things. And, and so do we. If we are ever going to build something sustainable, if we are going to start a fire that doesn't burn up and fizzle out before reaching its full potential. And so I think that begs the question for each of us as, as individuals, what's the spark that I need? Am I missing out on an aspect of this new life in Christ? Am, am I like John Wesley, knowing all the things, but just not quite feeling it in my heart? Am I walking around like a, a well-preserved tower of wood and kindling, just not living up to my potential in Christ because I haven't found that spark that I need to ignite my love for God and for my neighbors? Is there an area of my heart that I just haven't surrendered, that I just haven't been willing to be honest with myself or with anyone else about that I struggle? Am I only committed to the teaching or rather only committed to the fellowship and not both? Those are questions for us to ask ourselves individually, but here's the thing. The book of Acts is a book that's about the community of faith. And so I ask you, you know, as a church, what's the spark that we're waiting for? Or, or what's the spark that actually already happened? Because I stand here pretty well convinced that the spark has already occurred. And we're just currently in this time where we're trying to figure out which way we're going to direct our fire, as if we can control that. What is it that we need to be fueling this newly found fire with? Well, I'm pretty certain that it's the same things that that very first church fueled it with. Dedication to the teachings of the apostles and to fellowship with our community, not just within the walls of our church, but beyond. See, I think that if we double down on our devotion to Scripture and to worship while also focusing on building up our own community within the church and then building up our community without the church, that we will be able to fan into flames this fire that we have begun here in this place. I believe that we have opportunities if we are willing to take small or even large risks to step out of our comfort zones just a bit. You see, the story in the book of Acts is going to unfold and continue in unexpected ways because the apostles couldn't possibly have known what was going to happen to, with, and from them next. And I don't think that we really know either. We don't know what's going to happen next, but I promise you that it is going to be good 
Because God is up to something big here. I think that we all feel it. This place has a strange warming around it. God is on the move. So it's really time for us to embrace that and to see where the Spirit leads us as we continue to start a fire here in Fort Pierce. Will you pray with me? God of fire. God of flaming tongues. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That part of you that you have given to us, to all believers, that you wish to heal the world with. God, we ask that you would help us to submit to your leading. Help us to create and sustain an environment where your work can be done in the most unexpected in wonderful ways. God, may the, the fire of your love burn outwardly from this place, consuming all of the hatred, all of the darkness, all of the brokenness that this world has to offer and replacing it with the deep and abiding peace, love, and joy that comes from Jesus Christ and the community of faith. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.